The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, FA Cup. Chelsea and Liverpool spend afternoon drawing with pens, then Liverpool write their name on the cup. Meanwhile in the league, there's a twist as Man City draw with West Ham. Pep's players unrecognisable, like City had just commissioned a statue of them. Now, prepare the guest room for Mr and Mrs Narrative as City head to a final day showdown with Stevie G. We'll be drawing our conclusions on that, the relegation battle and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Would you look at that, listener? It's Monday the 16th of May. Hmm. And we've got Daniel Story, Dom Fivefield, and Sasha Gurionov lined up. All right, everyone. Morning. 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 First of all, congratulations on the hard fought Cup win, Daniel Story. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. It was a tense affair. Went long as well, didn't it? Yeah, sudden death. Yeah. Yeah. All right. How are you feeling? Yes, good, thank you very much. Glad to have that uh, outside of the back of my mind at all times. Right, right. (laughs) What's replaced it in your kind of worry zone? Forest. Oh, there's 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 always a queue. (laughs) I wouldn't worry too much about that. Forest, right, yeah. All right, meanwhile, on cloud nine right now, it is Sasha Gurionov. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, endless, endless, scoreless cup wins for Liverpool at the moment. (laughs) Mm, well, I have to say, as a neutral, I'm really enjoying these hours and hours of goalless uh, football. Uh, but well. uh, it's, it's a no. It's the Italians an, must be loving it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, all right. Well, uh, there's plenty to talk about today. Not least uh, the uh, the drama at uh, the London Stadium on Sunday and what that means for Liverpool's other ambitions this season and people's semi-final playoffs and that kind of thing. But of course, we should begin uh, with the FA Cup final Saturday afternoon. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The FA Cup final sometimes does spring up unlikely heroes. Here's Simicas. Constantinos Simikas winning the FA Cup final for Liverpool. Sasha, two out of four then. Two finals, one without actually scoring a goal. Uh, but uh, huge celebrations nonetheless. Yeah, great uh, great release uh, once Simikas puts away his penalty. Um, these Liverpool-Chelsea games yeah, do seem to have gone on for a long, long time. In fact, if you consider all the injury time and all the extra time played... Those five game, four games that they've uh, played out this season are probably worth five, um, and they're all draws. Having said that, I thought that this particular final, um, Chelsea were a lot less impressive than they were uh, in February. I think they really missed Havertz and his sort of clever movement. Uh, Liverpool, on their part, again lost a key player, but didn't really seem to suffer too much from it. And having said that, after a very quick start, I thought Chelsea did their best to do a bit of Villarreal, trying to kill the pace, you know, taking the time over injuries, trying to sort of put Liverpool off the stride while sort of waiting to pounce on the odd mistake here and there. So I think, I think also you have to consider when, you know, timing of this match and it was very hot, so in the extra time, every, like the whole thing died. But I have to say, I think the entire Liverpool end thought very dark thoughts when uh, Mane's penalty was saved. But fortunately, there was redemption. Hmm. All right. Only four shots on target between the two sides, but probably worth it as a match for the Trent Pass 
alone. What did you make of it, Daniel? Yeah, I thought it, it, it's interesting in that all of these games I've felt, Chelsea, Liverpool, you can tell Liverpool are a significantly better side than one place in the league table suggests, I think. Um, we know there's a, a, a two at the top of the Premier League and then a, a little group of teams, Chelsea, Tottenham, Arsenal. And exactly as Sasha says, it felt like Chelsea were trying to subdue Liverpool. It felt like they were they were much more worried about the threat against them than they were about pushing Liverpool and challenging them, which was a bit different to the League Cup final. Lukaku struggled. It was a big call by, by Tuchel to play him. Uh, and he didn't really affect the game. Um, when he plays well... He takes two defenders and therefore creates space for others. When he doesn't play well, he kind of does the opposite, which meant that Liverpool. It, it always felt like Liverpool were playing in a, with a kind of in a kind of comfort mode, but Chelsea defended well. And with these sort of things, we 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 have, we have to react to to the end result. But let's face it, we were two kicks away from saying mm. Chelsea win through adversity. Tuchel gets it done in another cup final, despite all the noise going on. With this talk of Andreas Christensen set, you know, set, declaring himself unavailable for the game, Rudiger's leaving. There's a lot of uncertainty around Chelsea, and yet Tuchel came pretty close against a team that is better than them of of achieving something really significant. But you know that's penalties. It, it comes down to those very fine margins. Aspilicueta clipping a post and Simicas putting his penalty inside it, and sometimes those are the differences. But bigger than that. We have to look at Liverpool as this kind of trophy-winning machine under Klopp. They've they've done the lot. Trent Alexander-Arnold's done the lot at at such a young age. And as ever with Liverpool, it never feels like the final they've just won is enough. It always feels like they're looking forward for right. That's done. That's parked. What's next? Mm. It's an interesting one with with Chelsea and 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 Daniel's right. It has been quite an unsettling few months for them. But I, I don't think you can necessarily use that as a, an excuse for this. I mean, the, the, the reality is that Liverpool won the FA Cup without Mo Salah on the pitch, without Virgil van Dijk on the pitch at the end and without Fabinho on the pitch. Um, OK, Kai Havertz and, and Timo Werner were both ruled out with hamstring problems, which which did actually hamstring Chelsea and Tuchel, because I think he would have looked very seriously at that, that Havertz more fluid mo- uh, movement up top to unsettle Liverpool because it's worked against them in the past this season. But it's just been three very, very difficult months for, for for Chelsea off the pitch. And I think it has had an effect. I mean, Tuchel said as much. It has unsettled them as a group. Um, and it's in, in that context, I suppose it's 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 quite it's an achievement to have got to an FA Cup final. But I'm more interested in how how people actually rate the season now because they come away with two pieces of silverware, albeit legacies from last season: the, the UEFA Super Cup and the FIFA Club World Cup. All you know, born of their Champions League success last summer. They've reached a League Cup final, an FA Cup final, and they probably will finish third. I mean, at most clubs, that's a pretty good season. But I think at, at Chelsea, there's a sense of anticlimax about it all. Um, not least when they were winning the FIFA Club World Cup, I think they would, everybody thought they would kick on. They would, you know, potentially there'll be more silverware to celebrate this year. So it's almost like this that this season is going to be a bit of a hangover going into the summer and, and the takeover. And they've got to, they've now got to rejuvenate that entire squad. But I was just going to ask Sasha, what happens, Sasha, if Liverpool don't win the Premier League and get beaten by Real Madrid? Do people look at this season as a success with 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 two trophies and domestic cups? And I think that certainly will be disappointment um, uh, at not adding to the to existing trophies. But at the same time, I think if you look at the bigger picture, again, if this feels like Liverpool on the upper trajectory again. Uh, so no matter how ridiculous it might sound, second place in the Premier League, Champions League final and two cups, the feeling is they could probably do better next season. 
Um, and you have someone like, say, Konate, who is going to be coming more into his own next season. Let's see how Thiago looks like. But also, I mean, if you look at Liverpool now, uh, compared to a few, a few years ago, you can see there's a depth in squad. I mean, you mentioned those injuries, they're missing those players. But, you know, when Salah walked off on... Um, on Saturday, there was certainly apprehension and concern, but there wasn't like this panic that, for example, we had three years ago when he was off injured against like, Newcastle uh, and certainly not like in final 2018. So there is a depth, there is a confidence to the side and there is, there is a feeling that this can be built upon. And also, I think it would be nice to have a parade at the end of this whole thing because there is the overdue celebration for Liverpool State title in 2020 and that celebration never happened. But certainly, I think as a fan base, um, the feeling is it's onwards and upwards. And the feeling is everybody in the squad can, you know, step up. Like, for example, you know, the, the final in February, the Kelleha final. This is going to be the Timikas final. You know, sort of squad players who contribute at, you know, vital moments. And I think also for this particular game, if we actually go back to the original uh, question, I think James asked about the pass from Trent to Diaz, mm. which he should oh, have yeah. put away. This is, again, you know, um, yet another vindication of Liverpool's transfer policy. Diaz was man of the match in, the, in, in, in this game. He came in in January. I think, you know, without Diaz, I think it's been widely recognised, Liverpool probably don't push on to the level of success they are enjoying the, at the moment because I think their squad, again, as these injuries are showing, their squad is being stretched, but yet they're, they're managing it. So, Yes, I think if they only end up with two trophies, there will be disappointment. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, it's not going to be like, oh, let's rip up the whole template again. Because you see you have also Klopp staying on and everything feels like the project is moving forward. Mm. All right, you'll be able to take positives even if, you know, the next... Okay, good. Uh, Chelsea, meanwhile, <laughs> have to deal with losing in the FA Cup final for the third year in a row. As Daniel says, they were only a couple of penalty kicks away from having a very different a narrative on this Monday morning. But then again, how much of a lottery are uh, penalty kicks against Liverpool? Because you always seem to win them, Sasha. We do. Uh, and this is before before Klopp got uh, Neuro 11 uh, on board. The, so I've seen Liverpool now... What's Neuro 11? Uh, they are um, a bunch of neuroscientists who uh, helped Klopp apparently with penalties and helped Liverpool prepare for penalties. But then historically... Ever since Rome... Um, Can I just say it's 19- great these days that even kind of groups of scientists come with their own kind of names, like the Neuro <laughs> yeah, 11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like hashtag or maybe at Neuro 11. Um, yeah. But, I mean, Klopp certainly praised them after the match. And with, with Liverpool, historically, I mean, since that final in Rome in 84, Liverpool have only lost one cup final on penalties. Um, I mean, I've personally seen out them Out of how many? Out of... Um, I know that it's 19, they've won out of 26. Yeah, that's overall. But when it comes to the crunch, I think it's seven out of eight. And I've been to... Ooh. six of those wins. And so, yeah, I've seen Liverpool win eight cups and six of those have been on penalties. So when it comes to penalties, you're quite confident that it, they will somehow do it despite ups and downs during the shootout itself. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, I think Chelsea were playing for penalties uh, on uh, on Saturday uh, for large parts of that game. And, you know, Liverpool have the better goalkeeper and Liverpool have history and neuroscientists on their side. So maybe it wasn't the right idea. <laughs> I think the only the only obvious thing to jump out of the the penalty shootout, slightly ironically, because it was it was a Liverpool miss penalty rather than the Chelsea ones, are our Mane's penalty against Mendy. Um, the idea of putting up a player against his international colleague is is a kind of slightly awkward one. I think um, this is the first time in English football history that two teams have met in penalties in the same season, but. Mane and Mendy have actually done it at international level. They played two penalty shootouts against Egypt this season. So, Edouard Mendy has seen a lot of Sadio Mane taking penalties one way or another. Um, Klopp spoke after the game about 
you know, did he tell Mane to go a different way? Did that get into his head? If at any point you change your decision, I think that that becomes an issue. But I thought that was a an interesting point. And also, I was I was surprised that Aspilicueta took a penalty so early for Chelsea. Don will know far more about this than me, but I can't remember the last time I saw defenders taking the first three penalties for a club in a shootout. It, it, if I was asked to name Chelsea's five best penalty takers on the pitch towards the end of extra time, I would have naturally had Loftus-Cheek above Aspilicueta, probably. And obviously Loftus-Cheek was taken off purely because he wasn't seen as a penalty taker and Ross Barkley scored his. But yeah, I was a bit surprised that Aspilicueta went quite so early. But I suspect that was just him being a leader and trying yeah. to show that he can... I mean, potentially his... Well, probably his last major showpiece event with Chelsea I mean there's a good chance that he leaves the club in the summer um, he's got two home games left to go but this was going to be his big send-off and uh, it didn't really go to plan One curious moment with penalties as well I thought um, after every Chelsea penalty um, Alisson grabbed the ball and you know gave it to, the next, to his colleague to take the next one and on his save if he doesn't do that the ball rolls back in you know those clips you see on YouTube, penalty goes safe, keeper goes wild and the ball bounces back into the net. The yeah. ball was going to do the same if Alisson yeah. wasn't there, but he could have quietly something. picked it up and you know gave it to the next, um, to, I think to Tsimikas. Uh, but yeah, I was curious because we were down the other end and we were like, oh, it's gone up in the air. And clearly too much YouTube, we're thinking it's going to roll back in. But <laughs> Sash, you mentioned the injuries before. Uh, Mo Salah, Van Dyke, Robertson as well. Luis Diaz, who looked like he banged his head nastily when the FA Cup lid... Dropped on him. <laughs> um, what's how much of a concern is that? You know, with the games coming up, hashtag. Yeah, um, so it sounds like Salah and Van Dijk are, sounds like they were precautionary. Uh, Fabinho again sounds like he's going to be back for the uh, Champions League final. Uh, of course, we're going to move on to the Man City game next. Um, but I think, you know, if it was still down to goal difference, I would really struggle to see Liverpool trying to score a million goals against Southampton on Tuesday because this was an exhausting game plus mm. all the injuries. So I think it's kind of, you know, back to Liverpool just grinding out wins in the league as I have been doing so far, rotating superbly without necessarily any pressure to go hell for leather because I think I think after Saturday they genuinely need, need a bit of a rest and the fact they have a game 72 hours later is, is quite challenging. It is indeed. All right, we'll talk about that and what happened with Man City very shortly. A quick shout-out though for the other FA Cup final this weekend. On Sunday, Chelsea going up against Man City and Sam Kerr once again. Star of the show with Chelsea's opening and decisive final goal in a 3-2 victory over Man City in front of almost 50,000 fans. Her record is now eight goals in her last four consecutive domestic cup finals. Extraordinary. Yeah, it was it was a very similar game and a very different game in that it was obviously packed full of goals. It was 3-2 after extra time. But it felt exactly the same in that you always felt Chelsea had the advantage and yet Manchester City by scoring equalizers kept themselves in the game. Sam Kerr is a is a cheat code uh in English women's football at the moment because she's you know she's 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 electric. Her movement is incredible, her finishing is incredible. The second her second goal, the winning goal is 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 slightly lucky. I, I'm not actually sure it was going in. She's credited with it, but I think it might have been going wide before the deflection. Um and the first goal was a was a poacher's goal. It was an overhit cross that I think there were two Manchester City defenders there. I think if there had been one defender there, I think they would have kind of dived to try and clear it. But I think the fact there were two meant they sort of left it for each other and Kerr just kind of nicked in after it had 
gone over the goalkeeper's head. But yeah, Aaron Cuthbert's goal was the the goal of the game. A fantastic strike off the underside of the bar from from twenty yards. And yet Chelsea always, I, I never assumed they weren't going to win it. And yet you know it, it went to extra time, and therefore it was close. But yeah poor Alana Kennedy who makes the mistake for for the winning goal trying to kind of cut out the long ball forward and the bounce slightly does her and yeah Kerr just punishes it mm. Chelsea retained the trophy which they'd uh, only just won of course back in December you can hear more about that on the Athletic Women's Football Podcast which will be out on Tuesday alright next up for us Premier League Well, Eintracht Frankfurt may lie 11th in the Bundesliga, but we all know they have punched well above their weight in the Europa League this season. David Moyes had his eye on the prize when he rested the apple of his eye, Declan Rice, against Chelsea in a league match a few weeks back, with the view to having the midfield domino fresh to see off the Germans. But it didn't work out like that, as Frankfurt managed to burst the hammer's bubble, both home and away, to book a place in the final, where they will now meet Glasgow Rangers in Sevilla. The form had been in the book though, as the German outfit had also scalped Barca in the round beforehand, with the 3-2 win at the new Camp, dumping out Xavi's men. Frankfurt are also only the third finalist in Europa League history to start the season in the group stage and not lose a single match en route to the final. Rangers, meanwhile, saw off a fancied Leipzig side in their semi-final and Giovanni van Bronckhorst's men will now be aiming to become the first Scottish side to win a European trophy since Sir Alex's Aberdeen won the Cup Winners' Cup back in 1983. Amazingly, the blue half of Glasgow have won 18 European knockout ties in the last four seasons. Very impressive. So this game is sure to be an interesting one. The Paddy Power Traders make Frankfurt the favourites at 13 to 10. The draw is 23 to 10, and the Rangers win is 2 to 1. Frankfurt deserve their favourites tag, and will be looking to become the first German side to lift the Europa League since Schalke did back 25 years ago, when it was known back then, kids, as the UEFA Cup. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or indeed the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s. T's and C's apply. BeGambleAware.org. And remember, take time to think. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. This Final day of the season in the Premier League looks set to be a tasty one with one relegation spot still to be decided three teams in the running for that Arsenal and Spurs duking it out for the fourth Champions League place and the title race very much still on as long as Liverpool don't lose to Saints on Tuesday Man City had a chance on Sunday to pretty much put it to bed in a remarkable match at West Ham. Before we get into what Man City did and didn't do, what did David Moyes and West Ham do here against a team that had just set, remember, coming into this match, a English record, the first team in top flight history to win five consecutive league games by a margin of three goals. So how did the Hammers stop them? Moyes kept Jared Bowen as high up the pitch as he could. We're used to Mikel Antonio kind of leading that line. He actually dropped a bit deeper and was almost kind of linking play slash trying to drag defenders out, drag Fernandinho out and had Bowen as the highest man forward to 
basically try and break that City line. And that's exactly what they did. Um, City were incredibly complicit in both goals. They they lost so many second balls in that first half, in their own half. And Bowen was brilliant because he, he, he made two perfect runs, both of which in real time I assume are going to be, you know, one of those horrendous late offside flags where we wait until we all get excited and then realise we shouldn't be. Uh, and neither were, and, and neither were particularly close. They were brilliant breaking runs from Bowen incredible composure I mean this is a guy who I I see why he wasn't in the last England squad because Southgate had a settled squad and Bowen at that point felt quite new in terms of absolute peak form but he has remained in that peak form almost longer than anyone else in the Premier League this season I think certainly longer than anyone else outside the big six Uh, he will be in the next England squad I'm sure of that and he deserves to be because the composure to it's not that easy to round Edison. He's a brilliant goalkeeper at one-on-ones and he made it look incredibly easy. The finish is much better than he got credit for from a tight angle. And the second one is is brilliant because he's already done Edison on the first goal. So Edison's worried about him going round him. So he takes the shot really early before Edison's even had a chance to set himself. So West Ham were phenomenal in that first half, but City were, and we'll talk about them, but they were, you know, yes, they came back, but they were complicit in that. They were dreadful. I think Guardiola made a huge mistake in picking Laporte and Fernandinho. If I'm Nathan Ake, yes, I'm getting paid quite a lot of money. Yes, I'm going to play for a potential Premier League champion. But if I've cost 40 million, I want to be playing in those games when Diaz and Stones aren't available and Mm. Carl Walker's not available. I'd argue one, one thing that Bowen did very smartly there, and I think teams are doing this, they're targeting Zinchenko uh, at left-back and the way he kind of looks across that line. So I think the junction between Zinchenko and Laporte wasn't quite working. And if you look at the two Bowen runs, Zinchenko stops in those situations at just the wrong moment to let Bowen Bowen through. And I think this is... I really like Bowen because I think he's been in fantastic form, not just for West Ham, but like for the last five years. Because remember, he got his... Um, chance at Hull amid the the ashes of yet another summer where there was no one else to play and he really took it I mean I went to Villa Park to actually see his first goal for them and I think he's literally the best of English he's a very direct eye for goal smart movement and he reads the situation really really well and this directness I think sometimes really catches out the opponents and I think this is where sort of Zinchenko and Laporte they were slightly off and he he, he nips straight in there of course higher position um, uh, than he usually plays but he can play across those three or he can even play up top for West Ham he had a chance very sharp one in the second half as well and I think again he might be overpriced because he's English and whatever else don't know if he's a top four player but certain and I mean where does he move for West Ham actually because West Ham are going to probably finish sixth or well they're going to finish at least seventh this season so maybe he's in the right spot but certainly seems to be like really sort of selflessly and yet slightly selfishly um, sort of um, blossoming in this environment that, that most created for him I think he's the top scorer in 15 years in terms of Premier League goals something like 12 Premier League goals so very, very good environment for him. And I thought in, in, in that first half, you know, he pretty much had the two chances and he took them. And, you know, at, at halftime, I think the rest of everyone watching the game you know, had to sit down and think, woof, is it actually happening? Well, indeed, because Man City have this dreadful record when going a goal down or two, as it was in this case. Since 1995, 107 times they've gone behind or they've been behind at half time. How many of those 107 matches have they come back to win? Two. That defensive setup, though, fruit partially of the absence of Carl Walker. Uh, how much are you anticipating that being the case against Villa next weekend? They've got a problem because that that kind of high line with not particularly quick central defenders and, and Zinchenko being slightly sloppy, as Sasha says, they get away with that when Walker's in the team because of the recovery pace. And I think 
you know, I don't know if Walker would have got back to stop Bowen both times, but he would have certainly given Bowen more to think about by sprinting round and trying to intercept. And Walker is not going to be fit next weekend, I don't think. I'd be very surprised if, if he plays Fernandinho and Laporte again as a, as a partnership because Laporte's been reportedly kind of struggling with, with fitness issues and injury and kind of limping through the last few weeks of the season. And Fernandinho's in the kind of mode where he's permanently like that now because the legs just aren't, you know, he's never been rapid, but the legs just aren't there anymore to to chase back and, and defend. He's a he's a defensive midfielder. He's, well, he's basically a tactical fouler by design now, which he still managed to do from centre-back. Let's not worry about that. But um, yeah, I think it has to be Ake and Laporte, I suggest, against against Villa next weekend. Mm. A week without a game, though, I mean, it gives them a bit of chance to... to patch these guys up and get them ready for for one last one last fixture i'd imagine there'd be a bit more to type but they may also just just be confident that they can monopolize the ball against villa and and inflict all manner of damage at the other end of the pitch which would uh, eclipse their defensive issues yeah i, I agree with that but I, I would also say that if there's one team when they're playing well and they haven't been recently yeah. if there's one team set up to kind of exploit that as West Ham did. It's probably Villa because they play Watkins and Ings, who are two strikers who don't actually get into the box very much. They they roam around. And whichever of Coutinho or, or Buendia he plays, and I hope he plays Buendia, the movement from them as well, that really can hurt City on the break. Well, see, this is the thing. I went to see, last Tuesday, I went to see Villa-Liverpool. And I came away from that thing because Liverpool were very, very much in power save mode. And I was thinking, City are going to shred these because uh, the defence isn't great. But looking at City yesterday and exactly how West Ham played, Villa showed that against Liverpool. And also Betton Traore coming on for the last 10 minutes was very very direct and very, very dangerous. So I think they'll, they'll probably give that City defence a running. So if Villa can stay in the game, maybe there is a hope for a result there. Um, but I don't know. I was On Tuesday, I thought it's a foregone conclusion. After Sunday, I think maybe Villa do have a bit of a chance of taking something off City. Wow. Well, a little bit like uh, Chelsea City. We're, of course, only a missed penalty kick away from having a very different conversation this Monday morning. Rib Mares with that late penalty saved by Lucas Fabianski. I wonder if... Uh, will it be Erling Haaland taking spot kicks for them <laughs> next season? <laughs> I, I don't uh, think I've... I can't remember a player standing over a penalty who, and it's very easy to say in hindsight, who I was more sure wasn't going to score than Riyad Mahrez <laughs> with that penalty. It, it, it does him a disservice because he has scored penalties and the one we remember is the one at Anfield that he, he plays over the bar. But I just, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of sort of old man thing to say, a kind of proper football man thing to say maybe. But A, I hate that run up. And B, if I've got Kevin De Bruyne on the pitch, I'm very happy with him shooting from 12 yards. Even if he just passes it into a bottom corner, that's fine by me. And if a keeper saves that, fine. But Morris tends to do that. He tends to whip his penalties across the goalkeeper. And when you do that, you inevitably get some height, which is fine when he hits it top corner, which he sometimes does. But at that height, that's basically the perfect penalty for a goalkeeper to save if he goes the right way. Hmm. Although a lot of people point you to Harry Kane's uh, lower a technique has, has been the, the, the perfect spot kick. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on Spurs a bit later on. Uh, City having come back uh, to level it with uh, a fantastic goal from Jack Grealish and then uh, an own goal from Vladimir Sufel. Uh, West Ham, who are now guaranteed to at least be in the Conference League next season, will be away at Brighton on the final day. They are two points behind Man United. And who have Man United got? 
fact found. Palace. Uh, palace. palace Ooh, Dom. Gone Palace. At Soho's Bar. <laughs> yep, where Palace haven't beaten Manchester United since 1991. Well, if ever there was a time. I don't, is that, is someone better check that. Well, I'm pretty sure that's true. <laughs> Feels right. <laughs> hmm. All right. Well, we'll preview, of course, all those fixtures come uh, Thursday. Uh, should but should right- just should mm-hmm. just say I mean, just just give some City some credit there that, that you know West Ham have beaten Liverpool at home this season, they've beaten Chelsea at home this season, and they were two 0 up against Manchester City this season, and that was a that was quite the comeback second half for a team that is clearly leggy as well, um, struggling a bit uh, in terms of the the bat line. I actually thought for a period that this was going to be Jack Grealish's big moment. This was going to be the the time where he actually, you know, wrote his name all over the title race. Or maybe he'll save that up for Aston Villa at home, which would, you know, have its own subplot. But uh, I thought I thought the way that they came back into it and almost claimed that victory was just a reminder that they are quite the team. Yeah, it felt like Grealish had been told at half time by Guardiola that he, he has to take his man on a bit more, which is why they signed him. If you were going to sign someone to, to shuttle the ball back, they wouldn't have... A, I don't think they'd have signed anyone because they've got plenty of players that can do that. But the way he he draws fouls has to become a larger part of his role at City. It might not be a, it might be something that winds opposition fans up. But he takes on his, if he takes on his man, he will be fouled if he doesn't beat that man. And that's exactly what happened for the, you know, for the for the second goal and the first goal. Yes, it's a deflection, but he's finally in those areas. He's looking to get at that back post. Gary Neville in the last two City games has been kind of apoplectic that Juilish is not at the back post for a chance or taking on his man and and he's right and Guardiola must be saying that to him I don't know if it's a confidence thing because he did it all the time at Villa and he has got players around him now who can do just as good if not better things than him with the ball but he has to take that man on because that it stretches the game for City and it wins them free kicks from which they'll score they've scored more set-piece goals than anyone else this season Well he did contribute a a phenomenal goal in this one. And that point means, Sash, as you were pointing out, that Liverpool are not going to be chasing goal difference in their penultimate game of the season this time around away at Saints, which had made everybody, Nick Miller in particular, think back to another occasion when they've been chasing the title and looking <laughs> for a goal difference on the penultimate day of the season. Dom, I know you remember that one. <laughs> I remember that one largely because I was writing a colour piece on Liverpool that night for The Guardian and had to file at 80 minutes. Um, ah. So it was all about how oh, really? Liverpool were back in it. It's all going great. And it was the only time <laughs> in my life I think I've actually cursed a two-goal Palace comeback in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Christian Bull. Uh, away at Saints, Sasha. That's Tuesday night. Any concerns that there'll be a, an unexpected twist there? Well, to be honest, not not really, uh, because I think Liverpool have been. I, I think f- for many, sort of the league campaign has gone. Uh, something has given a bit of hope. Um, I think Liverpool have also shown themselves to be competent enough against the non-big six sides this season again. I mean, they've played twenty-six games against them, twenty-two wins, two draws, two defeats. So I think they, they should be able to manage that game to, to win, and as they have been showing over the last few weeks. Um, you know, just basically just getting it over the line in the league and whilst they're keeping up the cup runs. You know, as, as we mentioned, you know, after the cup final with all the injuries, uh, they have to be able to manage their squad, uh, but they've shown they can rotate about five or six players and, and still keep up the um, keep up the levels. So not, not too much concern. I think with, with Liverpool fans at the moment, it, it's a midweek game on the South Coast. So I think the tickets are actually quite easy to come by. But the last trip to Southampton that I remember was in 2019, 
which was actually quite significant for Liverpool in the longer term because that was when Jordan Henderson moved into number eight position. That was a beautiful comeback. Um, very stirring scenes as Liverpool got two late goals. So, um, yeah, I'm going to be going down to St. Mary's with a uh, with bit of optimism, a bit of hope, and just hope to enjoy some football. I have to say that Southampton have won one league game since February. So even even a, a weary Liverpool should, should prevail <laughs> there. Mm. All right. Stand by to hear that with echoey sound effects. Replay. <laughs> I'd just like to apologise to Liverpool supporters. All right, next up, we'll have a think about the relegation picture. See the ballet last night, Dave? No, I missed it. Cracking performance from the Rom Bear. The lad De Silva's right on his game, banging in the pot of dirt he was. We know fans go a little gaga once the football season is over, so make the most of whatever's left with Paddy Power's Bet Builder offer. Money back as a free bet if one leg of your 4 plus 4 Bet Builder lets you down. Paddy Power! Pretty much online bet butter bets only. Min odds 1 to 5 per leg. Max free bet £10 per day. 7 day free bet expiry. Excludes enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. All right, the situation down the bottom. Burnley. Currently in the bottom three, 18th on 34 points. One point above them, Leeds and Everton, one point above them. Both Everton and Burnley have a game in hand on Leeds, which I guess is why lots of people are saying Leeds are favourite to go down, even though it's Burnley in the bottom three. Those games in hand coming up this Thursday when Burnley will be at Villa, another team who's depending on Villa for their end of season. Uh, and uh, Everton will be hosting Crystal Palace, Tom. What, what to make of all of this? Massive Thursday night. I mean, it's huge. I mean, Everton, Everton's the chaotic nature of that that game against Brentford and the, the sendings off and the I mean, a bit Leeds-esque, really, because they're, they're now losing players through injury and suspension for at a critical time of the season. And... Albeit Palace will have absolutely nothing really to play for, I, that that won't be an easy occasion on Thursday, and it's it's, it's another one of those times that Frank Lampard's going to have to whip up the uh, the locals and and get them you know crowding out the the bus and letting off fireworks the night before in team hotels and all that business just mm. just to get Everton through it. I mean, so it's, uh, it's going to be ahead of an occasion. The fireworks outside Brentford's uh, gaff were quite phenomenal, actually. But then I think basically Brentford weaponized this after winning the game, saying, you know, the fireworks were on the pitch. And then I think, was it Jans- uh, Janssen was saying, oh, they've only lasted 10 seconds or something like that. So I think they, they turned that one on its head. <laughs> I, 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 maybe I'm reading, I'm putting two and two and making seven or eight here. But I did wonder, given the chaotic nature of the game, given the sendings off, given the kind of rash decisions they made, I'm not sure that kind of hoopla before the game helps teams necessarily that much what you want in those sort of scenarios Everton should have been favourites for that game just as they should be favourites on on Thursday what they what you want is to just Everton have got better players than anyone else in the bottom six what you want is to play with control and those players to show why they are the best players in the bottom six and 
I, I don't think whipping up that storm... I can see why you whip up a storm with your underdogs and you're trying to create this kind of hard atmosphere for the opposition teams. But for a home game against Brentford on a Sunday afternoon, I don't think it works that much. I think what you want is to just play with clear heads and not play on the edge. And Everton... I just think they're falling into this trap of every game's a cup final. Every game's a mm. cup final. And actually, it shouldn't be like that. They should they, they have it in their own hands. They should be in control. They should just be playing the game on its merit. It, it It's very hindsight-orientated, you know, that. that. It's, it, but I just think it was a, a kind of misstep. Daniel, you know what I would say? Um, I, I agree, like, in, in general terms of what you're saying. But I think for Everton, for the fans, for the team... I think this has actually been hugely important because I think they've been dead inside for such a long time. And the yeah. fact that they managed to rouse themselves for sort of this passionate end of season, you know, fans meeting the bus, the flares, the colour, the atmosphere. I think they needed that to shake themselves back into life. Whether they then can go rational against Brentford, Brentford, maybe that's just not the way forward. Maybe, yes. I mean, they completely lost their heads and it, it, it looked like a complete calamity. But perhaps without whipping up that favour in the first place, they wouldn't be in this situation where they actually managed to drag themselves out of the bottom three. And maybe they just need to somehow, you know, it's, it's almost as if like they've all turned to Jordan Pickford in the stands and on the pitch, mm. and it's all a bit <laughs> I mean. nuts. Um, or Salomon Rondon. Or Salomon, mm. oh, I mean, Salomon Rondon. That was, I, was, I felt very sad for him doing that. But yes, there is obviously that, um, it, the danger that you will overstep the mark and just fall off a cliff. But I think maybe in this situation, maybe this is what they need. Uh, because I think for so many years now, so much apathy, the club drifting uh, somewhere, and they're literally standing on the precipice, and maybe this is the moment when everyone's kind of, maybe it's all a bit chaotic, but just everyone just getting their together and getting themselves to do something with a bit of passion, with a bit of fire to them. I mean, it's traditional for Everton to suffer with the Reds, I suppose. That's so five players they've had sent <laughs> off in the last 11 games, but Rondon, a particularly choice example for anyone who wasn't following this, what exactly happened with this brief vignette? Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, you you, you can follow. <laughs> yeah. We could almost talk through his appearance in real time. Um, he he came on with six minutes to go. Basically, it's a roll of the dice call from Lampard, which is fair enough. Richarlison was limping around a bit. Dermot Calvert Lewin was limping around a bit, and he sent on Rondon to to just chase a goal. Uh, and within, I think, two hundred and twenty seconds, Rondon has lost the ball, and then. It was almost like a slow motion two-footed tackle. It was like he sort of sat down at speed in the way he sort of thrust his two legs out and then immediately apologised and was rightly shown a red card and then sort of applauded the crowd and got a high five from Lampard, which is the most misplaced high five I can remember because he just completely let down his team. And I mean, at least oh, now Lampard sure won't be ten- ap- I'm not sure he was applauding. I thought he was. I thought he put his hands together as if he was sort of praying for forgiveness, almost. Oh, okay. His head, it's sort of like they didn't. They didn't clap. They they, they were sort okay. of there. Please forgive me. Oh, you're not going to get forgiven for that, pal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see what happens next yeah. week first. We should say on 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 Everton and, and Leeds. The big my big worry is that given Gerard is Villa's manager and next Liverpool player and will want to do something next weekend, I do worry for for Leeds and Everton whether Villa may not quite go at full pelt on Thursday night against Burnley. <laughs> because they, they, they play Thursday and Sunday, which, I don't know, I think, I think Burnley will win on Thursday night. Burnley, who have only just played Villa, of course, and got beaten quite comfortably by yeah. Stephen Gerrard's side. Uh, we should mention Brentford, who won this game, and as a result are enjoying all these shenanigans from the lofty heights of 11th. In fact, could finish the season in the top half 
of the table. Had the season began, as many wished, when uh, Christian Eriksen signed or made his first start for them, they'd be fourth in the Premier League for people who enjoy stats like that. Anyway, there you go. And they, of course, will be facing Leeds on the final day. Sasha. I was just going to say, I thought um, one thing with the Everton game, I thought at this stage of the season, if a team were going to try to sort of inventively exploit a team going down to 10 men, it would be Frank. Because I thought in like he looked at the situation here, of course, then eventually he took all the um, defenders off. But the way he got Rico Henry to attack on the left versus I think it was Iwobi um, and Coleman, I think. What was left of Everton's defense? He basically just played played as a fourth man, I think, up front, and then he was getting down the line like all the time in the first half. He got his goal, and I thought the the whole sort of approach was very like, yeah, this is Brentford. They can experiment. They're not danger of doing anything, and at this stage, they will hurt you. And I think that they did. They played second half almost. I think for me, almost perfectly. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, Everton will be at Arsenal next Sunday, but before that, they have the game with Palace if they get the win there. At Goodison, they will be safe. So there you go. Burnley, meanwhile, are the team, as we mentioned, in the bottom three. But a little bit unjustly, would you say? Did you feel bad for them losing that game at Spurs on the basis of that kind of pretty iffy penalty? Yeah, well, it, it is a it is a penalty, but it, it, it's another one of those where the punishment doesn't really seem to fit the crime in that... Um, it's the same. That, that's the same punishment for a handball as it would be, apart from the red cards. If you handballed it on the line, which seems slightly farcical, but those are the rules. And I think it was a penalty by those rules. Burnley had the absolute perfect game plan. I thought they were brilliant against Tottenham. I think last week against Villa, Mike Jackson got a little bit of a, a scare because he's been trying to play this expansive football and they've done it well. And they just got picked off by Villa at home last weekend. And I thought he would go more resolute anyway against Tottenham, but they were they were very deep defensively. But what they did really well is that with the third defender, they told Nathan Collins to step up out of defence and try and play passes through. And he created the best chance of the game for Burnley for, for Maxwell Corner with a He's, this is a Burnley central defender who was about 35 yards from goal in open play and played a through ball to an attacking midfielder. So they they didn't abandon the expansiveness, but they were they were brilliant defensively. And they shuttled Spurs out. They stopped them crossing from near the goal line, which is where Spurs' best chances came from. They 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 made them cross from wide and deep. I thought they more than merited a point. I thought they were excellent. Spurs had chances clearly, and Nick Pope was was named man of the match. But you need that. You're playing a team that's far better than you with a brilliant strike force. And I thought Burnley were brilliant. I, if they play like that against Villa, they'll win the game. Hmm. Uh, Harry Kane converting uh, the penalty after Ashley Barnes's kind of ephemeral forearm contact, possibly with the air adjacent to the passage of the, the ball. I mean, I've heard this idea, and I, I think it's a compelling one, that the penalties are, are wildly disproportionate in quite a few cases. I mean, to determine a game on something as random as that does seem wrong. How would you, Daniel, as someone who's clearly given this some thought, how would you resolve that mm. that injustice? Yeah, I, I mean, firstly, yes, I absolutely agree with you. Football is unique as a sport and it only has two and a half around scores per game. And I'd say 90 to 95% of the penalties you give, those offences are not 
you know, equatable to someone having a shot 12 yards from goal against a goalkeeper? Uh, uh, I don't know, is the honest answer. I mean, there's an argument for having, in, in, in cases where it's not a deliberate foul, i.e. the same ones as those denied of the last goal scoring opportunity, if you go for the ball and miss it, making it an indirect free kick rather than a penalty. But then you just get a kind of messy situation where you have 20 players in the box all trying to block the ball. Mm. Maybe there isn't Simbins. an answer. Maybe it's... Well, yeah, maybe Simbins, but then I still think you get teams deliberately fouling or making fouls and happy to take the Simbin. You know, we've seen arguments mm. for old Nazzle-style penalties where you run from the halfway line for a one-on-one. Oh, yeah. I think it's very hard to change without changing the fabric of the game. And VAR has shifted this because it has inevitably lowered the bar of proof for penalties to be awarded. And that has changed the conversation because... A goal is incredibly valuable in football and and therefore a penalty is incredibly valuable in football because you have about a 90% at least chance of scoring. And when you then have a marginal decision, which is technically right by the law, but that nobody really believes is worth what is effectively a a free shot at goal, you do slightly have a problem. We haven't quite got to the stage yet where teams are playing for penalties in in, in normal time as as a strategy, but I'd be amazed if managers aren't talking about it with players. You know, go down, aiming for the arm with a with a cross. It, I can see how it would happen. It would be sillier if it didn't. Team we haven't talked about yet from the relegation picture are Leeds, who earned themselves a vital lifeline with that 92nd minute equaliser from Pascal Strike against Brighton. How big was that goal? Biggest goal of the weekend. Just amazing. Okay. I mean, just Leeds will not go quietly. They're 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 they're, they're scrapping and and having. <laughs> So many of their their problems self inflicted over the last few games with Luke Aylin and Dan James, um, and a, a real sort of makeshift nature to the to their setup to recover from being a goal down to one one of the best teams away from home in the division as well, mm. a, a team that had created chances and 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 performed in that slick way that we know that Brighton can. Um, for them to to conjure an equaliser right at the death of that has, has just fueled their hope and and given them something to to take into into next weekend I mean that obviously they're as I say Thursday night them watching schools rolling in from from Villa Park and Goodison Park is going to be agony it's going to be excruciating but they will have a chance on that last day they will have a chance last day sees them visiting Brentford while Burnley hosts Newcastle and Everton travel to Arsenal Arsenal who haven't played yet and uh, neither of Newcastle, of course, because they face each other on this Monday evening. Question on um, on Brighton, Dom. Um, is it important for Palace to finish up with Brighton this season? And which do you think is currently the better team in terms of playing football? Brighton are the better team because they've been working with Graham Potter for three seasons now. Patrick Vieira's had, he hasn't even had 12 months. Um, is it important for Palace to, well, look, I mean... It would be the first time in a long time. I think the first time actually since Palace were promoted in 2013 that Brighton will have finished above them. Um, Palace beat them in the playoffs that year. Um, but I think there's a sense of realism at Palace that, you know, you don't, you, you can't transform a team overnight. And, and in fact, what they have achieved this season has been as proud as probably as, as, as it's gone as well as it could have done, really. Uh, I think they'll continue to kick on, particularly if they have another good summer of recruitment. And and 
they'll have another hopefully have another good summer of recruitment this year. And I mean, look in the two games against Brighton this season, not so much at the Amex, but certainly at Selhurst Park, they've they've really competed for long periods against them in in previous the last two years. There have been moments where Brighton have played them off the park. They haven't won, but they they played them off the park. And I think that, that gap in style has now been trimmed. Um, and uh, Palace will hope that that's, a, that's sort of started a trend. Hmm. Brighton currently lying 10th in the top half. Three points clear of Palace, but Palace have a game in hand. Hmm. Crikey. Uh, we'll deal with some any other business then after this. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which is excellent news for Everton fans when they make their Lampardian transition from serious to funny to serious once again. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Maximum free bet is £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. Online exclusives and T's and C's apply. Listener, mentioned that the Athletic Women's Football Podcast is out on Tuesday. So is... Totally Football Show European edition. Bit of a must-listen this time around as well. As we look ahead to the Europa League final, Eintracht Frankfurt against Rangers. But also here, about the departures in the Bundesliga, not just Erling Holland, but Robert Lewandowski saying that he wants out of Bayern Munich as well. We'll catch up on the Italian title race, which is going right down to the wire. And loads of other stuff as well. Ooh, Sasha. I was going to, say, I was going to ask, are you, going, are you guys going to talk about Union Berlin? Finishing sixth and now getting into Europa League, uh, the club from Kerpenick. Yeah, absolutely. We certainly will, Sasha. A Totally <laughs> Football League show is out <laughs> right now. So if you're bored of this, that's there for you. Matt Davis Adams and co. Recorded on Sunday night. Uh, what on earth might they be chatting about in that, do you think, Daniel? Well, yeah. I mean, yes, on Tuesday night I will be going to the city ground for the second leg. I should be watching a possession by rights because Forrest should have been two or three or, dare I even say it, four goals up at half-time. Right. Eventually did get a second goal, albeit after a period of Sheffield United pressure and then did what I assumed they would do, which is concede basically in the last minute, which tightens the tie up. There is an argument given Forrest famously won 2-0 away at Yeovil uh, in the League One playoffs, assumed they were through and then lost 5-2 at home. Ooh. That um, that that late goal is probably not the worst thing for Forrest in that at least it will mean that they don't think they're through. But um, 
yeah, I, it is going to be a, a horrendously nervous night. For though that for people that don't know and assume that Forest's only rivalry is with Derby, there are plenty of Forest fans, probably me included, who think that the Sheffield United uh, kind of rivalry is a a more fierce, almost more fierce one in terms of match days than than the than the Derby one. What? Why is that? Why? Why? I don't really know. I, I I know there's a there's a kind of historical element to it going back to uh, the miners' crisis and that sort of thing and the, the kind of difference between Yorkshire and, and Nottingham at that point. But it's yeah, it's just incredibly bitter and fierce. We also have history with them. They they knocked us out of the playoffs in in two thousand and three when. They drew at home and Forrest managed to again lose an extra time in, in the playoffs. So, yes, it's going to be a horribly nervous night at mm. the City Ground on Tuesday. Will, will Flea, uh, out of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, be there? I don't know, and I also don't know why you've asked. <laughs> he tweeted before the first oh. leg, Nottingham right. Forest is going down, capitals, up the blades, three exclamation marks. That's quite okay. I mean, I mean... Forest are able to magic any sort of crisis out of positivity, but if we go down this season, I'll be annoyed. Put it that way. <laughs> okay. I think he means going down in the sense of getting yeah, defeated. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a lot of uh, water to go under the bridge before that. Yay! Actually, so. Very good. Mm, nice. Anyway, more on that in the Totally Football League show, which is out, as I say, right now. I was going to ask, Daniel, what's your rivalry like with Luton? Uh... It's a kind of historic one because of cup finals. Because of 1959 FA Cup final, we beat them. And 1988 League Cup final, we beat them. Um, Bluton worry me because they have absolutely, you know, they have a free shot at the playoffs, basically. I, I think Huddersfield would beat them. I think if we get through, then it will be Forest Huddersfield at Wembley, not not Luton. But that doesn't do a disservice to how brilliantly Nathan Jones has done this season. Now, meanwhile, on this podcast, if you're still with us, got a couple of games that took place this weekend, and Don points out, we never mentioned Mark Noble. They only gave him an hour for his farewell, and we still forgot about it. Dom, were you moved? If I was a West Ham fan, I definitely would be. I, I, I think it's uh, what an achievement as a one-club player. Hopefully he gets his 550th game at the, on the final weekend. It's, uh, it's a hell of a, an achievement. And he's, I don't, the, the weird thing about Mark Noble is I think when he started out, I don't think anyone envisaged that he would be a one-club stalwart, that he would he would have this this career and, and, and maybe endear himself in the way that he has over, uh, what is it, 18 years in the, in the West Ham first team. Um, but he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's become Mr. West Ham. He's, I think it's, it's great because I, I suspect that we won't see this happen very often anymore. They're probably going to become rarer and rarer. They're not particularly common as it is to have somebody play this number of games for one club and then and then retire off into the sunset. But it was it was great. I mean, the, to see his his kids out on the pitch with him and and uh, see him inviting Prince Albert of Monaco into the stands. I mean, that's mm. pretty weird and uh, quite interesting. <laughs> was Prince Albert there at his invitation? Yeah, one nobleman to another, I suppose. Yeah, the the story was apparently that that Prince Albert fell in love with Dimitri Payet as a West Ham player, and because of that, at some point had became friendly, and I think they are good friends now with Mark Noble, and got in touch with Noble to request that he could be at his last game. Um, So yeah, it was. I mean, it's it was bizarre seeing it on the TV, but it. It's nice, isn't it? 
mm-hmm. and yeah, Noble is by all accounts one of the good guys. You know, he looks after young players in the academy. He offers advice. Jesse Lingard, even you know, he tweeted on on Sunday to say, even in the short time I was there, he he took me under my wing. He he kind of he taught me through everything. He made me feel comfortable. Do not underestimate, even when they're not playing that much. Do not underestimate the difference that players like that make in a dressing room. And if I'm if I'm David Moyes, then you know I don't know what Noble's got lined up. But if it's not if he's not trying to keep him on the staff next season, he'd be a fool because he will make a huge difference in that dressing room. Well, yeah, hopefully we'll get another run out uh, in West Ham's season finale next weekend. Meantime, on the subject of goodbyes, Roy Hodgson's last home game in charge of the Hornets came on Sunday, uh, in which the worst home team in the Premier League took on Leicester, shipped five goals. But of course, even here, Leicester conceded from a set piece. Yay! Weird situation where you get the, the the man who's taking over in a few weeks' time paraded prior to kickoff on the pitch. Mm. Very, very odd. Very, very right. strange. But it's a strange situation genuinely, isn't it? At what yeah, you do get this sense that Hodgson isn't that bothered if it's a bit strange, is it? Should Hodgson get more stick for this? It, like, should he get more stick for the, the way they Watford absolutely disastrously bombed? Because mm. I get the feeling that everyone's looking, oh, well, Hodgson, you know, one last job, came, sort of came out of retirement. Oh, well, you know, he's kind of drifting off somewhere. They've been terrible. Like, it's just been absolutely abysmal run of form. This game, every single Leicester goal was a piece of absolutely atrocious defending in different ways. You know, defenders falling over, keeper coming to the edge, missing it, unmarked players, players get mugged in midfield. And like... Like, there's no fight about the whole thing at all. And I don't know what, what Hodgson is saying to them behind uh, behind the scenes, but it's like they've just completely stopped. Um, I'm not sure. So I was going to say, I'm not sure it's a compliment to Watford, Sash, but I think what saves him from getting that stick is that Watford were also terrible under the two managers before him this nothing. season. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I completely get that point, but it's like it's he's over a long period of time, there's been absolutely zero improvement. And you know what? Maybe maybe the reason that Watford has fallen apart is because after, I think it coincides with Emma Saunders leaving to go to Sky properly. Because I think she, since she left, I'm pretty sure their only win was probably that game against United and they lost the rest of the home games. Because I was thinking this, because she was interviewing players after the Brentford-Everton game. And I was thinking, ah, it's sort of putting the timelines together. It's probably, since Emma left, I don't think they won a home game or maybe one. Do we know much about Rob Edwards coming in from Forest Green Rovers? Yeah, he's done a he's done a brilliant job at Forest Green. They they took a bit of a, a punt on him because he'd just been he'd not had a first team job before that. Uh he was doing just academy coaching and, and first team coaching. Uh and yeah, Dale Vince is at pains to say he took a chance on him because that's all ended in a very messy situation with with Vince. Not unreasonably saying that if you were going to go and leave to another club after telling me you wanted to stay next season, we're looking forward to trying to get us up into the championship. It might have been nice for you to, at that point, say that you were considering talking to Watford and then proceeded to talk to Watford before being appointed. Look, the the, the loyalty argument is always blurry because it's a two-way street and clubs are very quick to get rid of managers. But it's a shame it's ended like that at Forest Green because he did a fantastic job last season. And it's a... We should say for it's a change for Watford. It's a very different approach. Mm. I hope it means that it's a change in terms of the long termism and the patience of it as well. But it's a it's a, a bold step to appoint a manager that has only ever managed in League Two at a club who basically will be demanding automatic promotion next season. Hmm. 
Uh, also, goodbye, or at least their final home game for Ben Foster. Is he is he retiring at the end of the season? No, he's not. He's going to look for another club. Right. He's leaving Watford. Um, yeah, be interesting to see where he goes. Uh, I think there will there will be some interest from teams in England, but possibly he might fancy something abroad. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, would he? Is he a candidate for the Champions League club third choice goalkeeper role, or do do you think he wants to be playing? I think, I think he wants to be playing. To be honest, I think uh, he's. I, I saw Watford the other week, and he was he was their outstanding player on the pitch. And I, I know he's been he he like everybody at Watford has has come in for a certain amount of stick, um, and he's made his mistakes. But he's also been excellent in periods in in, in matches, and and has kept them. You know, as a float as they can be, um, they're, they're not they're not great, and that that would be my defence for for Hodgson as well. I mean, he came in after the January transfer window. If you look at his previous jobs, he's always had sort of rock solid professionals that he could call upon. I mean, at Watford, it was Ben Foster, Craig Cathcart, Tom Cleverley, I suppose, in midfield. Sissoko, Sissoko, and he has actually done okay for them, um, but. I think if you went to any of Sissoko's previous clubs and said, we're going to make you, this is the man we want to build our survival hopes on, I don't think many people would say, oh, great, this is going well then. I mean, it's, 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 uh, I think it's, that was an impossible job. I, I think of all the mistakes made, Roy, Roy Hodgson made the mistake by taking that job on. He should have just stayed well away. Mm. Well, Ben Foster conceding five this Sunday. Two of them were from Jamie Vardy, who's now got four in two against two relegated side because he also put two past Norwich. Uh, previously, and Norwich this weekend had a 1-1 draw with Wolves. Crikey. Point there for the Canaries means they've now bettered their record low points tally of a couple of seasons ago. And they actually scored a goal as well, which is the first time in, well, not done much that late. Uh, that leaves one game which we haven't mentioned, but Dom, take it away with your thoughts on Aston Villa 1, Crystal Palace 1. Well, I won't have any, I don't have any thoughts in terms of in Palace uh, but I would say that Palace creating 16 chances at Aston Villa would be good news for Burnley because I don't think Villa's defence is, is as rock-tight as it should be, watertight as it should be, rather. And that should also offer Manchester City some considerable encouragement as well. Hmm. The uh, Philip Coutinho flipping the cliche on its head by being not like a new signing is uh, <laughs> good. Obviously, Villa announced in the week they were signing on a permanent deal. This is his ninth league game in a row without a goal or assist mm. and Emi Buendia in that time who who Gerard was asked why Buendia wasn't in the team and he said well he needs to contribute more goals and assists if he wants to be in this team he then started Buendia who both scored and assisted and then immediately dropped Buendia back to the bench for Coutinho I, I get why you want to use Philip Coutinho but I cannot get my head around relegating your club record signing to the fringes of the first team squad to accommodate a player who um, I think he's past his best. He has he has flashes of brilliance, and and I was at Villa Park with with Sasha on last Tuesday, and Coutinho did this brilliant flick over a defender's head, and then ran round and played a pass, and then lost the ball in midfield, and that's kind of how it's been at Villa so far. There's been these flashes of of excellence, but it's just not quite happening. And the, the money makes sense. Twenty million euros is or twenty million pounds is not a lot of money, and he's taken a massive pay cut to join Villa because he says he wants to start every week, but. I'd start Buendia over him at the moment. Reports have Luis Suarez prospectively uh, joining this kind of Anfield reunion at Villa Park next season. That'd be interesting. Uh, anyway, 
Lots of crazy transfer talk on the way because summer's almost here, listener. And so is the end of this Totally Football show. Many thanks for being with us. Dom and Sasha and Daniel, producer Charlie, and you, listener. Loads of other great podcast content out there, as we mentioned. And, yes, on Thursday we'll be back again with our thoughts on some of the midweek games, certainly Newcastle, Arsenal and uh, Saints Liverpool and a big look forward to the final day of the season do join us for that but now from all of us here it's goodbye you've been listening to the Totally Football Show part of the Athletic Podcast Network listen ad free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.